Well, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, let's pray together for a moment. Our Father, thank you for this opportunity now to slow down and to look into your word as deeply as we are capable of, Lord, and we ask for the help of your spirit. We ask for the help of the illumination of the word of God, which you have promised to us as believers in Christ, those regenerate with new minds, new hearts. And this day, Lord, we ask you to implant this word so deeply within us that we are different, that we are made more like Christ, that we are farther along on our journey of sanctification. Until that day we come home and when we see Christ, we will become like him, for we see him as he is. But in the meantime, let us continue to pursue Christ-likeness all to the glory of the head of the church, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I had the opportunity as a pastor to get to see inside the lives of many of you and over the course of two and a half decades or so in ministry, seeing inside what causes pain in your lives and Sometimes, though, that pain is self-inflicted. Self-inflicted pain, like noticing every offense, noticing every slight, everything unfair, everything that's not as you would have it. And in a person's life, this can reach epidemic proportions where ultimately everything that happens just causes you pain and dissatisfaction. How'd you like to break that up? How would you like a break from that? How would you like a break from the habitual obligation to be hurt, to be offended, to be so sensitive that ultimately no one or no thing, nothing can please you? That's a negative way of putting it. Let me give it to you positively. How would you like to get an immediate quick start guide of how to exude and express one of the defining characteristics of the genuine believer in Christ? It's It's a compass that points you forward It guides everything that you think, everything that you say, everything that you do. Well, if that's what you would like, then Matthew 5, verse 7, is for you today. Matthew 5, verse 7, and I'd like to work our way to it because it it comes logically after the other Beatitudes. So, Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is the sweet spot of the Christian's life. That's the the soft, precious place that we have. It's a crucial definer of what it means to be a Christian. Mercy toward others is, according to Jesus, a key ingredient in surpassing the so-called righteousness of falsely religious people. Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 9.13 to go learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. In other words, outward religion, sacrifices, is meaningless unless it impacts the way you treat people. In Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus condemned the scribes and the Pharisees of Israel. He said, you're hypocrites. And the reason he called them hypocrites is because they were outwardly, externally fastidious and detailed in all religious things, but they were merciless to those around them. Now, our focus in the Beatitudes has been joy. 
And so the question for this morning is, how does mercy contribute to joy? In a moment, I'm going to give you four means of joy through mercy. But first, we need to soften our hearts. We need to sharpen our minds with some theological underpinnings, some beams upon which we can build the structure of what it means to be joyful through mercy, because sound theology must be our foundation. So some theological underpinnings or, or beams for us to understand First of all, mercy in salvation is not earned by merciful works. Mercy in salvation is not earned by merciful works. Jesus is not strictly speaking of the idea that God will forgive unto salvation only to the degree that you've forgiven and been merciful to others. In fact, the view that salvation mercy is dependent on your mercy is often wrongly supported by the familiar part of the prayer that Jesus taught the disciples, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. There's two major reasons this cannot be the case, that mercy and salvation is somehow related to your merciful works on this earth. First of all, it's an impossible standard. No one's going to meet that standard. All people would fail because you would need to be 100% merciful in every opportunity that you've ever had. And the second reason that can't be the case, it dismantles the gospel. The gospel is defined at its core as the grace of God to the undeserving, to those who have not been merciful, to those who have not been gracious, to those who have sinned against him in every way possible. Now, there are absolutely salvation implications, and we're going to delve into that as we go, but there's not a cause-effect relationship that my mercy causes somehow the salvation mercy of God. It's better for us to say this. If I have been shown mercy by God, then by my very new nature, I will show mercy as well. Here's a second underpinning or, or a foundation here for us. In context, the mercy we receive is in the coming kingdom. In the context of the Beatitudes, the mercy that we receive is speaking of the coming kingdom. This is eschatological mercy in line with verse 3, the inheritance of the kingdom. Verse 4, the comfort in the kingdom. Verse 5, the inheritance of the land in the kingdom. The final satisfaction of entire righteousness, of sinless perfection, that comes in the coming kingdom. Verse 6. So like the outcomes of the other blessings, Jesus' primary focus is a kingdom focus. The qualities of a kingdom citizen now in this life which indicate the blessings coming in the next. It's another underpinning for us here. There are immediate implications in this life based on other New Testament teaching. There are immediate implications in this life based on other New Testament teaching. Just because Jesus in this text is speaking of receiving mercy from God in the life to come, that doesn't, by any stretch, negate the principle that your actions in this life matter. And as a matter of fact, we're going to see another text shortly in which Jesus gives a tremendously disturbing warning about being merciful in this life. Now, in the Beatitudes, we're seeing the very first outward manifestation of a person's salvation. The believer who is poor in spirit who mourns his own sin, who's lowly in his estimation and accepts the lowly estimation of the world, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that's a a yearning for sanctification, for obedience to the Lord. Now, blessed are the merciful, 
a tangible and concrete, concrete manifestation of what it means to be all of those things, to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to hunger and thirst, and so forth. Now we have the outward proof of salvation, that Christians are merciful. There's one more underpinning or beam for us to kind of put our thoughts the rest of the morning on. Mercy is theologically tied into grace. Mercy is theologically tied into grace. The terms grace and mercy are seen together four times in the New Testament, and they sound familiar to us. 1 Timothy 1, 2, To Timothy, my genuine child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews 4, 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of what? Grace, that we may receive what? Mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. So how do we think about these? How do we get precise? One way to think about these terms from God's vantage point, from a heavenly vantage point, is that grace is giving the forgiveness that you do not deserve, and mercy is not giving the judgment that you do deserve. That's how those are related. But mercy has a broader connotation than just not giving the judgment that's deserved. In both the context of how God deals with mankind and how we deal with one another, grace is associated with dealing with the sin of mankind. Mercy, listen carefully, is associated with dealing with the miserable consequences of sin. That's the slight difference there. Mercy includes a, a broad sense of pity. It, it includes a desire to relieve the suffering of a person, both from God's standpoint and from ours. Just to give you an example that probably easily comes to mind when we think about mercy, one of the most important situations we find ourselves in is when someone has sinned against you. Because in that moment, in a sense, you have some power over that person, don't you? You have power over them because you might press that issue to whatever degree you think is necessary, but you might also show mercy. You could, on the one hand, insist that you're going to assert your option to draw out a lengthy problem, and in some cases, maybe that's necessary to work through some difficulties. Or you could use the opportunity to demonstrate mercy, to let the offense be forgiven much more quickly than it took for the offense to happen. So that's just some underpinnings for us to understand, kind of to set our thoughts for the rest of the morning. I'd like to be as practical as possible here because Jesus is immensely practical. I'd like to give you four means of joy through mercy. Four means of joy through mercy. How do you, as a Christian, live a joyful life using the mercy that we have access to? The first means of joy, joy through mercy which converts sinners. We'll call this one joy through mercy which converts sinners. This is our salvation joy. Mercy is an attribute of God. Mercy is derived from God. Mercy is what we've received from God. So if you are to be able to understand the mercy that you're supposed to show in this life, you must first understand the mercy of God. You can't have one without the other. And I think there's really no greater passage to show us this than Romans chapter 5. And so let's go ahead and switch over to Romans chapter 5. Because we have in Romans 5 a stunning explanation of the mercy of God toward the sinner. In that God's mercy is shown that Christ died for us 
while we were in three terrible conditions. We were in just a a complete 100% need for mercy. Three terrible conditions. First of all, Christ died for us while we were in a state or a condition of weakness. We were in weakness. Romans 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. What does this mean? This weakness means you were beset by an absolute inability to come to God. There was no divine spark that swayed God to send Christ to die for those who would believe. It's not that God said, this person, this person, and this person just seems like they would be great Christians and I'm going to save them. Human power was completely a failure. God's love was completely a success. This is the self-caused love of God. There's nothing else caused the love of God except God. It's total helplessness. Or if I could put it this way, we couldn't come to God any more than a newborn baby can come to his mother. We were completely and utterly powerless. And in fact, weak here is paralleled by a term that helps us further define weakness. That it's not just that we were spiritually weak, we were also morally weak. We were morally weak in that Christ died for the ungodly. Just a little note here. In Greek, there's no definite article, the ungodly. It's not that there's the godly people versus the ungodly people. We're all ungodly. All people as a class are ungodly. Now, if we just focus on spiritual weakness, on inability to come to God, we could be tempted to see ourselves as innocent victims in the fallen state. But the ungodly part, that communicates our culpability for the weakness. We are ungodly. We have acted ungodly. We have acted in this way and it's been purposeful. And yet even in this state, verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What does he mean by the right time? At the right spiritual time. His reconciliation was made available to the sinner through the death of Christ while we were in our lost state. You had to be saved before you died. That was the right spiritual time. At the right historical time. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. The cross and the resurrection, this is the culmination of redemptive history. And how about at the right omniscient time, the right all-knowing nature of God time? Salvation has always been in the mind of God The death of Christ wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't plan B. It was always God's plan to to allow sin and then to deal with sin. Paul gives an illustration of this weakness, this hopelessness. Verse 7, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Now, at a cursory reading here, it seems like that the righteous man and the good man are the same person. They're synonymous, saying the same thing twice. But this is a comparison. It's a contrast. And that's very clear here. What is the righteous man? Not meaning righteous in your standing before God, but just in the general sense, it just means a deserving person, an individual person, someone you may or may not know This is the the fireman who gives his life for the potential victim. This is a combat buddy throwing himself in the line of fire to save a fellow soldier. That sort of makes sense to us. But verse 7 says this is rare. But here's the contrast. It's more likely 
that one might die for a good man. What is a good man? A good man is one with whom you have a relationship. Somebody you know, a wife or a child. So what's the point of this contrast with Christ? Let's see if I can reword this to make this clear. What Paul is basically saying is, it's highly unlikely that someone would die for another, even someone who deserves a, a proper life and who is, who is living a, a decent life and deserves to be rescued. It's a little more likely that someone would die for a particularly special person, for a wife or a brother or, or a husband or so forth. This is common knowledge. Everybody gets that, that you're more likely to die for somebody that you love than somebody you don't know. But the death of Christ is in a completely different category. He laid down his life for the ungodly, for the totally undeserving, that he might save them. He knows you. You did not know him. And he owed you what? Nothing. The death of Christ is a totally different category. It's without comparison. The first terrible condition you were in was weakness. The second terrible condition you were in was wickedness. You were in the condition of wickedness. Verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is an encapsulation of the gospel in one verse, in one sentence. While we were yet sinners. And this is very clear, and I want to make this point as as obvious as I can. The Father was not moved to save us because of the work of the Son. As if somehow Christ convinced God the Father to save people because of what he had already done on the cross. No, The love of God was prior to the cross. Jesus came to the cross with the intention of saving you. David Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, We shall never really understand the love of God until we see what sin is in the sight of this holy God whose wrath is upon it. In other words, according to the perfect wrath of God, if I could put it this way, this verse could justifiably have said this. But God shows his wrath to us in that while we were sinners, he poured out his fury on us. But the love of God is instead to show us that God has poured his wrath instead on Christ. This is called the doctrine of penal substitution. That Christ took our penalty as our substitute, not just our representative, but our substitute. The first terrible condition you were in was weakness. The second was wickedness. The third terrible condition you were in was war. You were at war with God. Verse 9, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We weren't just sinners against each other. We were enemies of God. What does it mean to be God's enemy? Does it mean that you were an innocent victim of circumstances? Well, if you, if you only knew what my family was like when I grew up, does it mean that God is being unfair? Maybe it provokes thoughts of, I never hated God. I, I've never been against God. That sounds a little harsh to me. The truth is, is that we declared war on God. Every one of you did. Romans 1 tells us that human beings deliberately ceased worshiping the one and only God and turned to false gods, even though there's evidence of God everywhere. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That means there's no neutral. There's no neutral. 
Colossians 1.21, the unbeliever is hostile in mind toward God. Well, I don't have anything against God. Yes, you do, because he's not big enough in your mind and heart to worship him and become his slave. You're not neutral. You were not passive. In fact, 62 times the Bible describes the unbeliever as, quote, against the Lord. You were not neutral. Your sin declared war on God, and therefore you were declared to be condemned to God's wrath. Romans 1.18, God alienated you from himself. Colossians 1.21, but while you were God's enemy, how did God deal with the wrath that you deserved? God justified you, verse 9, and reconciled you, verse 10. Now those are two related terms, but they're different justified. This is legal language. This means that the life that Christ lived has been credited to you and the death that Christ died was on your behalf. And and the trade goes something like this. Christ saying, I will give you the perfect life I lived and you will give me the punishment for the sin that you deserve. Justification says, I am now in right legal standing before God in the courts of heaven. If justification is the legal part of salvation, reconciliation is the relational part. And this is mind-boggling. Reconciliation. This is the making of peace between two parties who were formerly estranged, who were formerly at war. It's bringing about a love relationship between two parties who were formerly enemies. God didn't just save you and then remain aloof. God was not a judge who banged his gavel and said, well, I guess I'll declare you innocent and then went off to his own house. No, God was the judge who banged his gavel and declared you innocent and said, welcome to my house. And he formed a relationship with you. Justification is great. Reconciliation is unbelievable. Justification is the cause. Reconciliation is the effect. Justification is the legal side Reconciliation is the relational side. You went from being an enemy of God, not just to being a non-enemy, but to being a child of God. So Christ died for you when you were in the worst possible condition of inability to partake in the goodness of God at any level. You were weak, you were wicked, you were at war. There's no human illustration to help us understand this. Verse 7 proves that. There's no comparison. The mercy of God is beyond comprehension. I would hope that that would bring you tremendous joy to sit and just ponder everything that God has forgiven you of. It's not just that you were neutral because you weren't. Everything in your life was against God. That mercy is joyful. So the first means of joy through mercy, we have joy through mercy which converts sinners. That's an, I mean, we could close in prayer right here and that's enough for joy. And let me give you a second means of joy. Joy through mercy which confirms salvation. Joy through mercy which confirms salvation. Let's go back to Matthew's gospel, but go to Matthew 18, verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21. Jesus gives a long parable in response to a question from Peter about forgiveness. Just to set the context here, I want to go ahead and read this parable to you. It's very familiar, but perhaps some of the details will be brought to mind once again. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Jesus came and said to him, 
Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Therefore, the slave fell to the ground and was prostrating himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And feeling compassion, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and was pleading with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. And you might wonder how a slave of a king comes to owe the king, such a massive amount of money. 10,000 talents is basically a way of saying a jillion dollars, more than we can count. It's beyond counting. Just to put it in perspective, 1 Chronicles 29 records that 8,000 talents was used in the construction of the entire temple of Solomon. So why would this slave have a debt to a king greater than all the gold used in the temple? Well, almost certainly the only person besides the king himself would have that amount of money is a tax collector. And the tax collector, being one of many tax collectors, most likely pocketed some or all of the money, probably thinking the king wouldn't notice. What did the king do? The king did an audit. That is the tax collector's worst enemy. The king did an audit and the tax collector was found out. And so this slave failed to see the vastness of his own debt when compared to the smaller debt that another slave owed him. He arrogantly viewed the debt that he owed as small and the debt that was owed to him as big. What should he have done instead? The lesson here is clear. He should have recognized that the forgiveness of his massive debt ought to lead him to forgive the smaller debt. Now, in this parable, the king in the story clearly represents God. But the question that comes to our minds I think everyone shares this question. Is a simple one. Is the slave a believer or an unbeliever? Is the slave a kingdom citizen or is he a rebel? Scholars are pretty sharply divided on this point. The evidence of this being an unbeliever is pretty strong. He's called wicked in verse 32. That's not a term lightly associated with a believer in Christ. The anger of the king seems wrathfully intense here. He hands the unforgiving slave to the torturers. Verse 34. 
His punishment is severe and seemingly impossible to live up to, that he must pay back all that he owes an unimaginable amount of money. So was this slave representing a kingdom citizen, a believer, or is this an unbeliever? I'm going to leave the tension for now because that's what the parable is meant to do. It's meant to leave you a little bit unnerved. It's meant to make you examine your own heart in terms of forgiveness of others, mercy shown to one another. In fact, the ending of the parable leaves a lot to be desired from the reader's standpoint because Jesus, he leaves it without an ending. There, you don't know what happens. How is the slave to repay a debt we already understand is unpayable? Did the slave try to repay the debt? Did the slave ask for mercy once again? You, as the reader, are left desperately looking for a verse 34.5. And it's not there. See, the parable is sufficiently vague in identifying the slave that the person who claims Christ yet is consistently merciless ought to raise some serious questions about his own salvation. The person who claims to be in Christ yet withholds forgiveness from the person who asks for it, that person can make no claim to assurance of salvation. On the other hand, if you're compelled, if you're driven, if you're gospel-driven, even by sheer self-control through the Holy Spirit, you're determined not to keep accounts with the one who's offended you, not to keep bitterness against any other. Then you're demonstrating the fruit of salvation. You're doing the most God-like thing you can do, and that is to cast the sins of others as far as the east is from the west. And now you can have joy, and that joy is seeing that that compulsion, that drive in you to be merciful to others, to, to forgive others, this is sweet indeed because it's proof of salvation. It's proof that you're in Christ. Especially if you're comparing yourself to your merciless pre-salvation self, and now you can see that you're compelled to be merciful, to grant help, to grant compassion, to grant benevolence. And so there's great joy in evidence of salvation but i believe that the evidence is even stronger that this slave in the parable is a kingdom citizen he is a believer let me give you some thoughts to help back that up first of all the context is peter's question in verse 21 then peter came to him came and said to him lord how often shall my brother sin against me and i forgive him up to seven times, that's not a question of how to be saved. It's not a question of how to keep your salvation. It's a question of how to deal with fellow believers. So another bit of evidence. The slave is handed over to the torturer. This is a specific word. It's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. And it's very, very important that this is a torturer, not an executioner. This is somebody to inflict pain. Sometimes some of your Bibles may translate torturer, jailer. That's not an appropriate translation. It's a torturer, someone to inflict pain on the slave. Now, why does this indicate that the slave is a believer? Why does it indicate that? Because the king, God, is expecting a result. He's expecting an outcome. He's expecting the the debt to be repaid. The king is working on the character of the slave with the whip. This isn't something God does with the unbeliever. God does not work on the character of unbelievers. Here's another bit of evidence. The debt is repayable. The debt is repayable. 
but it must be properly identified. Not even the king could possibly think that this slave could repay the tax debt, 10,000 talents. In fact, the king would be going back on his word. He forgave the debt in the books of the kingdom. By definition, that debt doesn't exist anymore. So what is the debt that can be paid and must be properly identified? The king wasn't torturing the slave to get the king's money. That debt is erased. That debt is finished. The king was torturing the slave until he should repay the mercy that had been given to him. To repay mercy with mercy. What was he waiting for? What was he disciplining this slave toward? Until that slave would say, I will repay or I will forgive the hundred denarii small tiny debt that the other slave came and asked for mercy for. In other words, the king was looking for this result, for the tax collector slave to relent and say, just as I have been forgiven my massive debt, I will forgive this one little teeny tiny debt. That brings us to a sobering but helpful third means of joy. The first means of joy, joy through mercy which converts sinners. The second, joy through mercy which confirms salvation. Third, and we've really already begun this, joy through mercy which continues support. Which continues support. In this parable, Jesus is demonstrating a full-orbed, complete view of God. He has no problem describing God as a heavenly Father who forgives with endless mercy. And he has no problem describing God as a heavenly Father who disciplines with utter fearsomeness. I think it would be helpful to note that the Christian experiences two categories of forgiveness from God. They're similar, but they're not the same. One category is unconditional. The other is conditional. One category is eternal. The other is temporal in this life. The first category of forgiveness is the forgiveness that gives salvation, that you've received forgiveness for all sin, past, present, and future. Everything you ever have done, are doing, or will do, you're justified in the courts of heaven. We've already seen this in Romans 5. You're justified by virtue of the payment for sin made on your behalf by Jesus Christ, your Savior at the cross. That forgiveness is done. It's finished. This is the great debt that the slave was forgiven, the unpayable debt. This is permanent. This is forever. This is eternal forgiveness. It guarantees your entrance into heaven. It guarantees your participation in the future kingdom of Christ. But there's a second category of forgiveness. And that is forgiveness for the daily sins that we commit. The daily forgiveness from the Lord, which continues our fellowship, our closeness, our unity with the Lord. This forgiveness is not to somehow keep your salvation. That's kept in heaven. Instead, it restores a broken relationship with the Lord if you've been in habitual sin and you've refused to repent. This is the forgiveness Jesus spoke of when he washed the disciples' feet in John 13. And he told Peter that only the feet need to be cleansed, not the whole body as a whole, because he said that, He means that salvation is secured, but the dirty feet that walk around in the world need to be cleansed over and over again. Daily sins require cleansing and relationship restoration. And this is obvious to us. We know this in our own families. You might might with your small child have to break relationship. You might have to say there's something between me and you until you deal with this sin. But you're never going to 
tell that child, you're no longer my child. Those are the two types of forgiveness. And yes, the second category of forgiveness is available all the time and it's endless. This is the delight of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this forgiveness, this immediate restoration of fellowship with God, this is something you do not want to toy with by being unmerciful. You don't want to toy with it. Because it's deeply offensive to God that you who have been given forgiveness for an unpayable debt, endless mercy, should refuse to be merciful to the one who has the lesser debt. And just to be clear mathematically here, someone who offends you always has a lesser debt than what was forgiven on your behalf by God. Why? God is eternal. God is infinitely holy. Therefore, your sin against him is eternal and infinitely unholy. Sin against you isn't as bad because you're not holy and you're not righteous. You're not worthy of all honor and glory and maybe the sin against you is kind of, you kind of had it coming. Whatever the sin may be against you, you have been forgiven more, infinitely more. And so, should you choose not to forgive, to continue to hold bitterness in your heart toward another, Hebrews 12 says that your loving Heavenly Father will discipline you out of love until you repent, until you repay what you owe God. What do you owe God? To forgive as you have been forgiven. This sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Now, to be very clear, to forgive as God forgives is based in repentance. In Luke 17, Jesus clearly taught that forgiveness is based in repentance, that the restoration of a relationship must have repentance. That's the situation in the parable of Matthew 18. The slave that owed the wicked slave money begged for mercy. He repented, but he received no mercy. And if you behave mercilessly, God withdraws his help and his support from your life. You might say, wait a minute, you've gone too far now. Well, consider this. James 2, beginning in verse 12, James commands us, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The judgment spoken of here is not eternal judgment, but discipline, pain, hardship, stress, joylessness. If you're a merciless person, you cannot have joy. Those two, you can't do both. Your mercy triumphs over the pain that God would inflict in loving discipline. Maybe you still don't believe me. Consider this. In 1 Corinthians 11, some of the believers were acting in merciless ways. The world would label what they were doing as passive-aggressive, but the Bible would label it as merciless. There were factions and divisions in the church. Verse 18 says this. And when they gathered together for worship, traditionally it was also that the meal that they shared together doubled as the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. But some in the church were simply eating and drinking. In fact, they were drinking so much wine that they were getting drunk. And listen, this is an important part to understand. Some of the poorer believers in the Corinthian church, they counted on this meal. 
They counted on this meal to help them that the wealthy brought lots of food. And when others would selfishly eat everything for themselves, some literally went hungry. Okay, let's do a little study in context. Do you think that when Paul says there are factions and divisions, there's anger and bitterness among you, and in the very next set of verses, he says, some of you are eating all the food before others get any, and they go hungry. Do you think there's a connection? Obviously, there is a connection. The factions and divisions were also causing this mercilessness. The church is literally gathering to celebrate the mercy of God by partaking in the Lord's Supper. And some were going hungry out of the bitterness and anger of others. Some believers literally celebrating the forgiveness of God while simultaneously rejecting fellow believers who were in the same room. So what did God do? Paul said in verse 29 that the one who eats and drinks, likely meaning the vengeful exclusion of others, eats and drinks judgment to himself. And in the very next verse, Paul affirms that God is making these believers sick and some have even died at the hands of God. Don't toy with the mercy of God. If you still don't believe me, consider this. Peter admonishes Christian husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. She's a fellow heir of the grace of life. This is not speaking of salvation. The, the greater context of 1 Peter 3 includes how to live peacefully with an unbelieving spouse. The grace of life is marriage itself. What should you expect to receive in your marriage? You should expect to receive endless mercy, endless graciousness, endless forgiveness when repentance occurs. This is not Peter saying to husbands that if you leave the the cap off the toothpaste tube, I'm not going to answer your prayers anymore. God's not going to answer your prayers. No, this is a merciless spouse. Someone who doesn't show mercy when there's humility and repentance And God says, I'm done answering your prayers until you start showing mercy. If you still don't believe me, consider this. The psalmist says in Psalm 66, 18, if I see wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. This isn't just seeing in your heart. In Hebrew, this is a perfect verb. It it means seeing it over and over again, cherishing it, liking it, regarding it, justifying it, saying, well, you don't understand. Well, yeah, but, and this and that and this and that. And what's the consequence? The psalmist says, the Lord will not hear. You may consider the spigot of heaven turned off until mercy in your life is turned back on. Instead, If you'll heed these warnings, then the joy you have is in knowing that God continues support of your life, continues answering prayer, continues blessing your efforts in a life that's pleasing to Him. Joy through mercy, which continues support. Let me give you one more way, a means of joy. Joy through mercy, which characterizes saints. Joy through mercy, which characterizes saints. Even the world, in its lost condition, they use the word saint to mean somebody who's really, really what? Merciful. 
Now, the more technical proper use in Scripture speaks of all believers in Christ. We're set apart. We're made holy. That's what the word saint means. But mercy is a broad, it's an expansive concept. It's a palette of colors which paints many different and beautiful pictures. Mercy goes beyond relationship dynamics. It goes even into the realm of just very, very simply caring for each other. As we've already seen, the Beatitudes of Jesus have their basis in the Old Testament in, in many ways. And in this Beatitude, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. This is no different. This is based on numbers of Proverbs that speak of being merciful to the poor. In this same sermon, Jesus teaches the idea of mercy as simple compassion on those who are miserable. Back in Matthew chapter uh, 6, Matthew 6 verse 2, just a few paragraphs after our main text. Matthew 6, verse 2, Jesus says, Therefore, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be glorified by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will repay you. I want you to know this. Jesus does not Command, give to the poor. He assumes that kingdom citizens give to the poor. And even give a command. They help those in need because that's who we are. That's that's how we're made. This was John Calvin's view of mercy. He wrote this, They are blessed who are not only prepared to put up with their own troubles, but also to take on other people's, to help them in distress, freely to join them in their time of trial and, as it were, to get right into their situation that they may gladly expend themselves on their assistance. Or if I could put it this way, a merciless Christian is an oxymoron. A merciless Christian is an oxymoron. If you've experienced the saving act of God of being made poor in spirit, of being made to mourn your own sin, of being brought down to lowliness before God, and now characteristically hungering and thirsting for righteousness in your life, it is absolutely impossible for those around you to be seen in the same light before your salvation. You see them differently now. Toward the unbeliever, you see him as a victim of Satan in his own spiritually blinded condition. He's been duped, he's been fooled by the world, and we have mercy on them. Toward the believer, you remember that any sin Any deficiency in him is just as forgiven, just as covered by the cross of Christ as all of yours. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Stephen, as he's being stoned to death, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. The last words of Stephen on this earth are words of mercy. What's at the core of lacking mercy? What's at the center of that? I believe it's a forgetfulness of the gospel. That's why believers lack mercy. It's a forgetfulness of the gospel. Forgetting and not considering what you've been forgiven. It's forgetting that what we learned in Romans 5, that God forgave you while you were his enemy. If you know in your heart you're having trouble 
forgiving others you know in your heart you're having trouble being merciful, I would encourage you to take a pen with a lot of ink and a notebook, and I would like for you to list every sin you can remember you've ever committed. And when your hand falls off and you get notebook number three, remember what you've been forgiven. If you're forgetful of the gospel, you begin to lie to yourself and you begin to self-deceive about what I deserve, what you deserve. I'd like to close out our time this morning by putting one last bit of glue or nail in this. I'd like to give you three lessons in mercy. I don't want to be any part of a church that's merciless. None of you want to as well. Grace Bible Church ought to be characterized by mercy. Three lessons in mercy. First one, practice the basic forms of mercy. Practice the basic forms of mercy. Do you show mercy in terms of compassion and help? If I asked you to make a list of who you're helping and how you're helping them, could you do that? How about this one? We just read here that Jesus gave this principle, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your giving will be in secret. And this is specifically to helping those in need of mercy, helping those in need of help. This this isn't a literal command where, well, I got to keep one hand separate. The whole point is don't trumpet it about. That's what he said. That you, As the offering plate is going by, you drop in something for the benevolence fund. Look around and go, as it drops in. You know what we have? We have at Grace Bible Church a benevolence fund. And the reason we have that is so that you may quietly enter your funds into the benevolence fund and the elders then on behalf of you who, who won't be known can give to those in our midst. And we... Love to have that benevolence fund well-funded. And we encourage you even on, particularly on communion Sundays where you're more mindful of what God has done for you to give to that fund. And I would encourage you to give to that fund not after you've spent everything else you possibly can and everything you might ever need or want. Decide one month to say, here's the thing I want. I'm not going to have it. I'm going to give to the benevolence fund instead. That's us being merciful together. That's you keeping what your, your left and right hand, not even knowing what the other is doing. There's a second lesson in mercy. Use mercy to combat vengefulness. Use mercy to combat vengefulness. Romans 12, 17 says never, that we are never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. This is such an important phrase, respecting what is right in the sight of all men. What does that mean? Paul here is recognizing that personal vengeance, even a lot of unbelievers say that's wrong. A lot of them say that is, that is terrible. And how much worse if a Christian is being vengeful? Now, some believers might say, well, I'd I'd never be vengeful. I would never take revenge. And they may be thinking something obvious, like I would never punch a guy in the face. I would never do something terrible. I would never consciously try to wreck someone's life. Really. How about these forms of vengeance? Gossip and slander. Gossip and slander. You are murdering someone's reputation by separating them from meaningful relationships with people who now have a different view of that person because they made the sinful mistake of listening to something you said. That can be life-destroying. How about avoidance or the silent treatment? This is dehumanizing another person 
to the level that you begin to act as if he doesn't exist or, or to make some sort of quiet point in order to get your way on something. It's dehumanizing. It's to treat somebody as less than you when Philippians 2 says just the opposite, doesn't it? How about internally rehearsing past sins? Internally rehearsing past sins is a form of vengeance which says this, my previous forgiveness of you wasn't real. It was fake. How about this one? Quitting a commitment. Quitting a commitment just to inflict harm, to cause trouble or make someone's life more difficult. Or how about this one? Cultivating hateful thoughts about a person. Cultivating hateful thoughts. Oh, that doesn't hurt anyone, right? That's just between my ears. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5.22 that this is a murderous thought which is worthy of condemnation in hell. As a Christian, you won't experience that judgment, but do you really want to throw God's grace back in his face like that? Now, you can try to remember all that negativity I just listed, or you can just remember, blessed are the merciful. And that'll take care of the don't gossip, don't slander, don't avoid, don't rehearse past sins, don't quit on commitments, don't cultivate hateful thoughts. Let me give you one last lesson. This is an important distinction we have to make. Mercy is not the same as ignoring sin. Mercy is not the same as ignoring sin. Being merciful does not mean being soft on right and wrong. It does not mean having zero standards. Mercy is not ignoring sin in the, sa- in the name of acceptance and tolerance. Our culture screams at us that the most merciful thing you can do is to permit all people to be completely free-minded, that they create their own standards based on their feelings. To say that you support this is nothing more than false mercy, and it's a heinous form of self-righteousness. One of the reasons mercy is important is because it's an attribute of God that we're to emulate, but it's a mistake, it's a grave theological error to in self-righteousness, to arbitrarily assign mercy, you ready for this, as the primary attribute of God. It's not. God is gloriously merciful. He is also gloriously holy. He is also gloriously righteous. He is also gloriously just. He is also gloriously wrathful. All together. So the fact that God is merciful cannot create a false hyper-self-righteous idea that the most pious among us are those who never confront sin. God was merciful to the Corinthian church. You know how he was merciful to them? Because the merciless among them were being taken out. God was purifying that church. He was confronting sin in the church by removing those who refused to be merciful. Some have said, and I've even read scholars who say, Uh, The church at Corinth must have been a a terrible place to be. I would say it'd be a terrific place to be because everyone who was secretly sinning was dropping dead. (laughs) What did that do for everyone who was alive? They got on their knees. And the church at Corinth became a, a powerfully effective church for the gospel. I'll end where we began. The self-inflicted pain of noticing every offense, every slight, everything unfair, everything that's not as you would have it. This can reach epidemic proportions, which ultimately does nothing but cause you pain, causes you dissatisfaction. How'd you like to immediately get a quick start guide? 
to express the one biggest, most incredible defining characteristic of a genuine believer in Christ, the compass that guides every single thing you think, every single thing you say, every single thing you do. And we simply go back to the endless, eternal, unfathomable wisdom of Christ. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Our Father, may we emulate this in our lives. Every single person here I know has an area of their life in which they struggle to be merciful. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to show mercy in those basic ways, to help one another, to help the brother or sister in a, who has a basic need. I pray we would be merciful to one another's emotional and spiritual needs, that when one is weeping, then we weep with them, and when one is rejoicing, we rejoice with them. And I pray we would be merciful to those who owe us a debt because they've sinned against us, that we would mercifully forgive, and we would mercifully not just, not just extend justification that, okay, everything is, is all right between us, but to extend reconciliation, that we may extend relationship once again. Lord, I pray that in the coming era, in the coming age, when all who have been involved at Grace Bible Church stand before you and we are held to an account before the head of the church, I pray that the judgment of Christ would be, well done, good and faithful servants. You were merciful. You were merciful. You were merciful. That's our prayer. Humble us to do what Christ has commanded, and we pray for his glory and in his name. Amen.